Welcome to the McMillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Catherine Panterbrick, a professor of anthropology, health, and global affairs at Yale University. Professor Panterbrick's research consists of critical analyses of health and well-being across key stages of human development, giving special attention to the impact of poverty, disease, malnutrition, armed conflict, and social marginalization. Her focus on children in global adversity has included biocultural research with street children, refugees, and war-affected adolescents. She has published widely on child and adolescent health, including articles on conflict and mental health in Afghanistan, infant survival and famine-stricken Niger, growth retardation in Nepali slums, biomarkers of stress in the context of violence and homelessness, and the effectiveness of public health and humanitarian interventions. Today we'll talk with Professor Panterbrick about the research she's done in Afghanistan, focusing on the mental health of children. Welcome, Professor Panterbrick. Thank you, Marilyn. Let's begin with an overview of your research. Tell us about it. We conducted the first uh, large-scale mental health survey in Afghanistan, and before that there was simply no data to speak of that was systematic. Mm -hmm. So to put the research into context, uh, there's about a billion children who live in conflict-affected countries, and in 2009 there were 36 armed conflict, six of which escalate, escalate, uh, escalated the intensity of war, including Afghanistan. So conflict and health is a very big problem. In terms of research, there's very uh, little research that focuses on uh, adolescents, which are the next generation, uh, rather than adults, and very little research that looks at family context and community context rather than clinics, and also that takes a longitudinal uh, look at how things evolve over time. So we did a study of um, 1,600 children and 1,600 parents and teachers. Uh, we looked at this in the community setting, and we did a longitudinal work, so that was quite a landmark study. And what was the impetus for the study? Why did you do it? Um, it was the product of uh, working for about 10 years on children in global adversity, so homeless children, war-affected children, refugee children, and I often found there was a disconnect between the health interventions we put in place and the everyday lives of children. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to really uh, illustrate what matters in the lives of children, their needs now, and their aspirations for the future. So to do that as an anthropologist, we really try to look at um, what children themselves have to say and what civilian populations have to say because they're the least studied. I see. Let's talk about your methodology. How did you do the research? Um, we uh, worked in schools. It was quite evident that that was the really only setting that was possible to work in because we wanted to interview face-to-face -face children in privacy and we also had to ensure the safety of the field team. So working in mosques or school, uh, homes would not be possible to do. Um, the field team was three local women and uh, three men who were interviewing from going from school to school um, in a very politically and economically insecure uh, environment. So our office was sprayed by gunfire during the 2006 riots. Wow. Um, an NGO pulled out support in the rural area because the car of female interviewers came after dark. So those were kind of um, challenges, if you want, to work with. Um, establishing the random sample of school and contacting boys and girls and fathers and mothers was really the most difficult thing to do. Um, we were unable to access children out of school 
but there's about 68% of children uh, nationally who have enrolled in school at the moment. So you, we're talking about a very large proportion of children and an ever-growing proportion of children I was going school. to ask you that because I, I would have been under the impression that many children do not attend school. So 68% is, is much higher yeah, than I would have thought. It's uh, very fast-growing. Uh, education is at the premium. Families know that, those who can. Uh, often put their children and struggle to keep them there. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 11 to 16 year olds, so in the context of boys having to really um, work for the household economy and girls at the age of marriage, it's quite remarkable that those children still get to school. So because of curtailed education under the Taliban, some 16 year olds are in primary classes, of course. Mm -hmm. So it's all a mixed match of ages. And uh, is it um, equal boys and girls or? Uh, are there more boys than girls? Or There's obviously more boys than girls, oh, about okay. three quarters of boys and a lesser proportion mm -hmm. of, of girls, but they have girl and boy schools uh, very often. Um, then the, the other point to make was really that when you're working in, working in uh, conflict settings, you're very often guided by a paradigm that mental health is consequent of trauma of war, and I wanted to broaden that agenda a little bit to think about risk in a in a more interdisciplinary way. So I was trying to marry the best of psychiatry with the best of social sciences. Mm -hmm. And in psychiatry, you want to understand uh, what mental dis health disorders are and uh, who has them so you can treat individuals. In the social sciences, you might want to think about um, how this suffering comes about and why it's occurring and how it's experienced and coped with, so you, how it's articulated in a society setting. And was it difficult to do the work in the schools? How were you received? Um, as I say, we worked through local partners. So we mm -hmm. had a Ministry of Education uh, letter, which helps open doors. Mm -hmm. um, we, ha we worked through a uh, social work professor in Peshawar and a psychiatrist in Kabul. I'm an anthropologist. My research partner, Mark Eggerman, is a Middle Eastern specialist. So we put together the kind of team that would be able to be very effective. Uh, we implemented it with a Kabul-based research agency called Altai, and it was funded by a medical charity. Um, it was difficult, the most difficult thing was to get this random sampling of schools because you had to have a list of schools which didn't exist at the national level, mm -hmm. only district level, and a list of children which only existed at class level rather than at school level. So that was a challenge. But in itself, participation is um, not that difficult. The Afghans have a great tradition of hospitality, so when you get to talk to them, they invite you in. And we had, because we took our time and we built rapport, it was uh, quite extraordinary, really. Children told us it was the first time that somebody had come to ask them what their difficulties were. Uh, mothers told, them, told us it was the first time they had been allowed outside their home to visit the wow. school and to, visit, to meet the child's teacher. And the teachers told us it was the first time they'd been asked to reflect on how difficulties might interfere with education performance. So that was, um, participation I say was very high. People and saw the value of that. Uh -huh. And you mentioned that your research is interdisciplinary. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more? So it, um, as I said, we tried to uh, approach it from uh, bottom up, the, the social sciences approach. Mm -hmm. So we included a survey that looked at mental health disorders and what they were with uh, interview approaches that would understand us the how and the why of suffering as it existed. One of the things we found was that um, 
the most powerful predictor of poor mental health was violence. But, and that you can find out through your survey. But the explanation for that violence is only realized through the interview. And what was interesting was that the violence was not just contingent on war. Uh, it was not just a spectacular form of military violence that mattered to the life of children. It was very much um, the violence experienced through accidents and no resulting health care or beatings in the home or stabbings and brutality in the neighborhood. So the message is really not to just get uh, drawn into the visible forms of violence that we expect, bombardments, explosion, the American war, landmine injury, but also the more invisible forms of violence that exist and affect children very deeply, what we call everyday violence. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was um, one of your findings. Were there any others? The findings um, in terms of prevalence was that uh, one out of five children suffered from mental health disorders in the clinical range. Mm -hmm. That's twice what you expect in that age group. So it tells you that mental health is a big issue in Afghanistan. The more interesting finding might be that um, you could turn it around and say four out of five children live in that toxic milieu of poverty and violence and yet show few of the symptoms in the clinical range. So those are, those are uh, you could call them the resilient children uh, risk and resilience is like two-faced of a coin. Mm -hmm. You have the vulnerability and the, the survivors. We tend to think of children as victims of war, but also surviving it. So that proportion is showing you that, uh, yes, you can focus on the one out of five, but it's very deeply interesting to understand how the four out of five managed to uh, survive war in those circumstances that is and amazing. come out with better outcomes that you might expect. Let's talk about the mental health issues themselves. What are some of the mental health problems that you saw? Well, most often in, um, you find in that age group, boys would have conduct disorders at schools and girls would have emotional disorders of depression. And uh, in Afghanistan, it's very much all of them depression, internalizing disorders. So a great deal of sorrow, a great deal of grief, and um, and what we simply call depression, um, what I call the loss of hope in the future. So um, uh, th there's, there's grief related to war and the loss of your beloved and your relatives. If you lose your father, for instance, you're in an incredible precarious position because your father um, is the person who might get you your preferred cross cousin in a marriage, for instance, or you become you, you fall at the mercy of an uncle. So losing your father or losing your mother is really a huge loss of social support. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, you are in a vulnerable position in society. Um, you don't have somebody to fight <laughs> your corner if you speak. So um, there's that, I would say that's the most important, the depressive symptoms, mm -hmm. the most important um, mental health problems that we found. Did a majority of the children you spoke to, did the majority of them have um, loss in their lives? Um, yeah, everybody, this, I think the scale of loss is, is enormous. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have people having 30 relatives killed in the oh war, and the war has been going on for three decades. Um, so it cascades from one generation to the, genera to the next. Um, so that's pretty much everybody that is affected. Mm -hmm. um, and are you doing a follow-up survey to the We study? did a follow-up survey, which was pretty interesting in the sense that uh, in, the absence of a in the absence of an intervention, mental health outcomes uh, were better a year later. And that was a real surprise. I was expecting them to 
go downhill. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I understand those findings by the fact that I could only follow up those who had stayed in school and due to the absence of record keeping we couldn't follow those who had left school. So we mm -hmm. lost about 40% of the sample in Kabul. And it is those families that were able to anchor their children at school. That's a measure of strength and resilience despite debt, despite mm -hmm. illness, despite the threat of being evicted. Some families um, live in tents in the middle of a communal courtyard with no heating and no electricity. My goodness. That's the precariousness of the housing that you find other families are three families to a room. Mm -hmm. Despite that, they were able to keep their children at school. And so it's not surprising that their mental health outcomes um, didn't necessarily deteriorate. Those that did, within that sample, talked of um, family harmony and unity being uh, difficult. So mm -hmm. the diary phrases, itifak and wahdad, meaning the family had conflict. There were severe beatings inside the house. There was all the time some kind of frustration that erupted, and that made life very difficult. So it says that family violence is really an enduring predictor of children's mental health, even in the context of that extraordinary military violence that's going on mm -hmm. in the larger picture. So they kind of have a double whammy, the, the violence of the war yeah. and then the violence at home. Yeah, I think of several layers. Yeah. So there's the most spectacular one and the most invisible one. And I think you need to address both. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to really understand how difficult it is to struggle in that context. I mean, I, you know, a professor at Kabul at that time makes $50 a day. That's not enough to pay the rent in the context of these huge rent rises because of the expatriates' presence. So it really is a struggle. Um, that the the two kinds of violence are linked because your frustrations from the structural kind of violence that's exterior mm -hmm. um, kind of implodes inside the house and causes additional trouble. and the health of the you know the mental health of the caregiver and the child was very closely related that tells you that you need to intervene at family level rather than just individual level okay so based on your findings what are your recommendations for improving children's mental health? Um, my, the recommendations in humanitarian settings is quite clear. It is to provide psychosocial intervention, um, psych, uh, psychotherapy to children who have post-traumatic stress disorder type of distress that's consequent on trauma. And that's the tip of the iceberg, and that's looking after psychological well-being. For the rest, my mental health intervention would be a structural intervention. It would be to address the social, economic, and political uh, barriers that make children's lives a misery. Um, so I remember an Afghan father telling me that the broken economy is at the root of all the man's misery. And I remember that phrase because to me it would be the first thing would be to repair the broken economy, uh, to fix the overcrowding and provide adequate housing for these families so that children might have electricity at night so that they can study after school and not have and on top of their carpet weaving before and after school to help the family uh, pay the teachers a very decent wage because th some of them have two jobs they clock into school go and get a second job clock back into school because you need two jobs to keep your family going and so in that context the economy is really something that you have to fix first and foremost so I think working across sectors would be a very useful thing to do and not narrowly think of the risk to mental health as being just war and just a mental health intervention. And based on uh, your recommendations, do you think that they have any possibility of being implemented? 
Um, the, yes, there's a big basic package of uh, health services in Afghanistan, and it's very unusual. I think Cambodia is another country where mental health is uh, selected as one of the basic components for all health services. So that's a very big uh, progress in that way, and that signals that mental health is a huge issue. And um, so there is, there is work to do to structurally make it happen so that mental health is, uh, is not a psychiatric tertiary care, mm -hmm. but seen at the primary level and working across sectors. But that will take some time, but I think the, um, we're rowing in the right direction. Wonderful. And what was the greatest surprise to you in doing the study? The greatest surprise was um, the expression of determinant uh, hope that children had, uh, which I didn't expect. I was expecting to see distress, but not really this uh, incredible uh, determination to get to where they wanted to be and this idealistic expression of their future. To give you an example, we um, asked the children to draw themselves in the present and in the future. Mm -hmm. And they drew themselves in the present with rags and in tears and in the future as excellent doctors or remarkable engineers or dedicated teachers. And I remember one girl who was a street child and worked selling plastics in Kabul after and before school and she drew herself in drags in the present and then in the future she drew herself with a table and a microphone and she said she was going to be the first female uh, presenter uh, at Radio Kabul and a presenter like you Marilyn, that's mm -hmm. what she wanted to do oh. and um, you could say, you know, she'll never get there but that's the wrong attitude, the right attitude to say that she had the hope and that gave meaning to her life mm -hmm. and that was very, imp that aspiration is very important to the future so I think in mental health, for instance, Westerners think of, um, we tend to think about explaining uh, present well-being in terms of the past, and especially looking at the impact of war on present-day psychological health. Afghans articulate um, the impact of the future for their present health. So it's where they're going to go that determine, um, that makes meaning to their everyday suffering. And a girl who has that kind of determination and hope is a girl who is in better psychological health than somebody who's lost all hope. And hope is what keeps you going. It keeps a man standing up, and it's your anchor of resilience in the midst of great suffering. Mm -hmm. And it is surprising that there is so much hope still there. It is surprising that so much hope still there. It's very important to follow through. You're building schools and inviting refugees to come home in Afghanistan. So you have to have the follow through to provide socioeconomic opportunities. Otherwise, you're turning a very hopeful generation into angry, frustrated mm -hmm. men and bitter uh, people. Yeah. Uh, so that's very important, and that's an ethic of hope, if you want, in terms of reconstruction with the massive funds going in the country. But I remember one woman, and she said it very simply in four little words. She said, life feeds on hope. That's a very beautiful phrase. It is. So my take-home message for global mental, global mental health might be two things. It might be, first of all, work at the family level um, to strengthen families and really connect very deeply with the everyday life of children and their parents and work across sectors, mental health, social and economic sectors. And the second would be not just to alleviate suffering, but to build on that hope and the aspiration which is so important in the lives of kids. Hopefully those things will happen in Afghanistan. Thank you very much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thank you, Marilyn.
For more information about Professor Panterbrick and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.